Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start out with some actual good news tonight on the coronavirus front. I've been keeping up with developments, but there hasn't been a lot of good news that seemed really worth talking about. We're kind of in a holding pattern right now, waiting for a vaccine. And of course, vaccines can take a long time to develop and they can be delayed, as we've heard recently, uh, when people have adverse reactions, which need to be explored and confirmed to either have been caused or not caused by the potential vaccine. That is how we create safe vaccines, because we do create safe vaccines. Um, I'm going to try not to get too far into the weeds on that. We're going to keep moving, but um, just a reminder that the vaccines that we have have been thoroughly tested and they are safe. And in fact, that's exactly why we do these sorts of things, why we do these trials in order to create safe vaccines. But let's talk about what the actual good news is. The good news is that we've had a pretty good way to avoid getting the virus if used properly and by a majority of people. Unfortunately, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but wearing a mask, washing your hands, and socially distancing is proven to be very effective. And a new study looked at how homemade masks from breathable materials are faring against the virus, and it found that the majority of masks are working well to prevent the spread of the virus even if someone sneezes. Tahir Saif, a mechanical science and engineering professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champlain, decided to see if these fabrics could combat both small and large particles. The findings are published in what is my new favorite journal name, Extreme Mechanics Letters. (laughs) So, very exciting. Uh, Aerosol particles are generally classified as less than five micrometers, but larger droplets are up to around one millimeter in diameter. And they can also be, those can be expelled when a person speaks, coughs, or sneezes. And of course, these are thought to cause problems because momentum can theoretically force them through pores in some fabrics, breaking them into the smaller aerosol drops that become airborne and that are thought to be what potentially can spread the disease. Now, one of the issues, though, is that masks must be breathable (laughs) for people to feel comfortable wearing them and, you know, to be able to, well, breathe in them. (laughs) A mask made out of a low breathability fabric is not only uncomfortable, but can also result in leakage as the exhaled air is forced out around contours of a face, defeating the purpose of the mask and providing a false sense of protection, Saif says. Our goal is to show that many common fabrics exploit the trade-off between breathability and efficacy of blocking droplets, large and small. And so Saif and his team tested the breathability and droplet blocking ability of 11 common household fabrics, with a medical mask being used for sort of the baseline comparison since those are specifically meant to do this job. They used fabrics like those from new and used garments, so new t-shirts, old t-shirts, things like that, quilted cloths, bed sheets, and dishcloth materials. They compared the fabrics based on construction, fiber content, weight, thread count, porosity, and water absorption rates. Testing the breathability of these fabrics was the easy part, Saif said. We simply measured the rate of airflow through the fabric. Testing the droplet blocking ability is a bit more complicated. 
And so in order to do this, they used an inhaler filled with distilled water and an easy to find 100 nanometer diameter fluorescent particle, which mimics particles of the coronavirus. The inhaler forces the water through the nozzle, generating high momentum droplets, which were collected on a plastic dish in front of the inhaler. We count the number of nanoparticles landing on the dish using a high resolution confocal microscope. We can then use the ratio of the number collected with and without the fabric to give us a measure of drop, droplet blocking efficacy, Saif said. They also filmed the process using high-speed photography. The inhaler's droplets were moving at around 17 meters per second based on that high-speed uh, photography. Droplets from speaking, coughing, and sneezing have velocities between 10 and 40 meters per second. We found that all of the fabrics tested are considerably effective at blocking the 100 nanometer particles carried by high velocity droplets, similar to those that may be released by speaking, coughing, and sneezing, even as a single layer, Saif said. With two or three layers, even the more permeable fabrics, such as t-shirt cloth, achieve droplet blocking efficacy that is similar to that of a medical mask while still maintaining comparable or better breathability. Our experimental platform offers a way to test fabrics for their blocking efficacy against the small and now larger droplets that are released by human respiratory events. So that is very exciting because it basically says that wearing a mask, even one that is a sort of no-sew one made from a t-shirt, still gives you relatively good protection. And of course, there is no such thing as 100% protection unless you are on in an actual hazmat suit uh, and are fully encased in such suit. Um, but there are ways that we can absolutely cut down on our ability to be infected. And this is a really great way to do that. Um, and of course, we talk about that the masks are to prevent other people from you, but they do also prevent you getting it from other people in that same way. Um, and so there was a great uh, video I saw on YouTube the other day about how you would think you might think that two people wearing a mask wouldn't make that much of a difference if, say, there are two other people in the room not wearing masks, but the combined statistics of more than one person wearing a mask is actually more than what you would consider to be for two people wearing a mask, that the the mathematics works out to make it even more effective than you might think intuitively. And so the more people we have wearing masks, the better it is. But even if we don't have 100% of people wearing masks, if we can get up to the 80 and 90% um, in most of the areas, then we could do a really good job of working to get this under control. Um, unfortunately, as you know, Americans are not so great at this. Um, we are unfortunately uh, filled with this sort of individualist uh, ideology that doesn't value the community as much as it probably should. Uh, and that shows up pretty much in all aspects of our culture. Um, it's definitely a reason why I think we struggle with the idea of social services and how they are suddenly labeled as socialism, even though they are simply more about helping your fellow man. Um, and so we unfortunately have seen a lot of places that are not great at uptake of mask wearing. But we can only do what we can do, and we must just try to keep ourselves working to keep everyone safe and hope that other people are going to come along with us. Okay, so let us move on and talk about another story involving health. And so one of the things that upsets me most 
is the sort of thriving business, it seems, in blaming people for their own medical problems. And this comes in a lot of forms, um, in some very non-subtle ways and in very subtle ways and in all sorts of realms in between. And there seems to be a lot of um, oddly moralistic uh, baggage tied to a lot of things that people really can't do anything about. And, you know, that's problematic. Um, and so there are certain health issues that are caused by people's choices, such as smoking specifically and drinking, and in some cases, eating unhealthily. But even these supposedly cut and dried examples of making bad choices are far more nuanced and complex than they appear at first glance. Most people who smoke would prefer to stop smoking. Most people who drink don't to excess don't want to be drinking to excess. They don't want to be alcoholics. They have a problem. And even if people don't, moralizing doesn't help. Now, one of the more subtle forms of this is the idea that you can add or certain items or remove certain items from your diet that will miraculously change your entire health. And so this is an idea that um, is really appealing to a lot of people because it's, you know, humans like easy answers and that's an easy answer. You eat grapefruit and you'll suddenly drop a million pounds. Um, well, obviously not. Uh, otherwise, you would be in a lot of trouble and you would definitely be uh, in a laboratory somewhere being dissected. But anyways, um, and so, you know, the grapefruit diet is actually one of those great examples that people were convinced that if they just ate grapefruit all the time, well, you can't just eat grapefruit. That's not good for you. The human body is a complex machine that needs all sorts of nutrients and no one thing can give you all of the nutrients you need. And so obviously, again, the human body is far more complex than that. And there's no magic elixir for health. In recent years, one of the headlines that tends to pop up is a healthy diet can cure depression. And so the idea that you can change, that your diet changing could change your brain chemistry is not actually supported at the moment, pretty much at all. And so Florian Thomas Odenthal, a master's student in psychology at Leiden University, has published a study in PLOS One looking at the claims that food can change your brain chemistry in specific ways that would relieve depression. He found that many of the academic articles that are used to make the popular headlines are actually what are called um, literature reviews. And so a review article is one where the authors provide an overview of the current knowledge in a field. And so along with his supervisor, Mark Molendyke from the Leiden Institute of Psychology and co-authors William Van, Vanderdoes and Patricio Malero, Thomas Odenthal found that the conclusions drawn were much stronger than the papers they were drawing from could actually support. And so he looked at 50 articles ranging from narrative reviews, or again, literature reviews, systematic reviews, and meta-analyses. The three are different in approach, he explains. With a literature review, the author himself selects which studies and articles to include in the review. With a sy systematic review, there is a fixed protocol for source selection, analysis, and conclusion. And with a meta-analysis, the protocol is even stricter and is a statistical summary of all existing research. And so he found that a that most of the literature reviews reached strong conclusions in favor of a connection between diet and depression, whereas the more strict meta-analyses found no such strong link. And in fact, according to Thomas Odenthal, we also did our own meta-analysis. If you take all the experimental evidence together, no strong link can be found between your diet and preventing depression 
or for diet being able to help treat it. Unfortunately, it seems that the literature reviews are often the findings that reach the public and practitioners rather than the more uh, strict but less, shall we say, exciting meta-analyses. They found that literature reviews contained 45% fewer studies as a source than meta-analyses. In addition to having less overall studies, the studies that are chosen can be problematic. An author unintentionally gives too much weight to his own research or research that supports his hypothesis. This is called confirmation bias and is probably an important reason why the conclusions in literature reviews are too strong, notes Thomas Odenthal. And so this is important, obviously, for this field of research, but it's also applicable more systematically. We have now shown that for the link between diet and depression, this for the link between diet and depression, but the effect of the review type on the strength of conclusions probably also applies to more topics. With a systematic review or meta-analysis, there is much less risk of the conclusion being too strong. Journal editors should ask themselves whether they still want to publish narrative reviews, particularly if there is not yet a meta-analysis on the topic. And so that's pretty strong. He's pretty much saying that uh, it's possible that literature reviews uh, or narrative reviews just aren't actually worth publishing because they are too easily uh, misinterpreted and they are too easily uh, swayed by bias. And so I've noted time and time again that science is supposed to be a way to reduce biases. But the problem is, is that the reason we need science to help us reduce biases is that humans are so incredibly good at developing biases and in not realizing they have developed those biases and so not noticing that they are only looking at one kind of study. They may think that they are being completely and utterly fair while being completely and utterly unfair. And so that is one of the big things that we really have to worry about when we're doing science and why we need to have these more strict uh, papers out there, these meta-analyses, which don't make any judgment calls. They just go through a literature review and they say, give me every single uh, study that looks at this particular thing. And it doesn't look at, you know, and then of course, they do weigh those studies. So obviously, you can't just say that a study done by two people in their garage has the same weight as a uh, gold standard double blind test. And so there is obviously some things where when you're doing a meta analysis, you obviously do um, some sorting of those papers, you don't just take all papers as being equally on the same level as one another. But you're not specifically saying, I'm not going to look at this paper because I don't like the results of it or because, and not even because of that, more likely you would do that because you don't think the results make sense because your idea of what is going on doesn't match that. And so you tend to discard that as an outlier rather than keeping it in and looking at it as part of a systematic whole. So definitely we need to be careful about that sort of thing. Okay, um, let us move on now to something completely different. And we are gonna switch topics to botany and specifically a pair of stories about parasitic plants, which I thought was fun. Uh, I've been talking a lot about animals and birds lately. So I thought it would be fun to talk about a couple of plants stories, and I found these two that are both about parasitic plants. So very fun and interesting. So the first one we're going to talk about is the Australian daughter plant, Custica australis. And so this plant looks 
kind of like a worm, honestly. Uh, it never grows any leaves or roots, and it basically grows into a spindly spiral. And so what it'll do is it will actually swirl around. It will actually move around looking for a host plant. And once it finds a host plant, it latches on with tiny tubes that siphon off water and nutrients. It then grows and eventually covers the host plant in a tangled thread-like web of orange or yellow stems. The plant then flowers at the same time as its host. But how that last part happens has been a mystery. Usually, flowering plants use their leaves to sense when the time is right for flowering. But as we've noted, the daughter plant doesn't have any leaves. Um, and just because the pronunciation could be weird, it's D-O-D-D-E-R, daughter, not daughter, as in a uh, female offspring. So it turns out that the plant uses chemical signals from the host plant to know when it should flower. The plant apparently absorbs the chemical trigger protein called flowering locust tea, a great example of my uh, continuing idea that uh, scientists aren't very good at naming things um, or are great at naming things depending on which side of things you land on. In this case, I think it's probably a perfectly lovely name um, because, you know, that's what it is. That's what it does. But sometimes uh, I think that having to name things like this uh, sometimes leads them to having less imagination when it comes to naming other things. But anyways, that's just a personal preference on my part. There's no good reason to name anything fancifully. We probably should stick to things more like uh, this, where it's very clear what's going on. <laughs> anyways, it's called flowering locust tea or FT. And so they absorb the chemical trigger from their host plants in order to be able to flower at the same time as the host. And this is according to a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And so what this does is it allows the parasitic plant to maximize their growth and reproduction. It may also show why they're so successful with over 100 species across the world, which parasitize a variety of plants from alfalfa to acacia trees. Synchronizing flowering really makes sense for these plant parasites, says Jian Qiang Wu, a botanist at the, at the Chinese Academy of Sciences Kunming Institute of Botany. Knowing when the host plant is going to flower allows the daughter plant to avoid flowering too soon and not being able to produce the maximum amount of seeds because it did not grow to its full potential or flowering too late when the host plant has already died, leaving the plant with less nutrients to produce flowers. Wu had previously determined that the plants exchange other chemical signals with their hosts, so he suspected that they were picking up on this particular signal from the host. And so in order to test this, the researchers let three species of daughters latch onto plants with, differing, with different flowering times. They found that the plants shifted their flowering time to match the hosts. When they were tied to a plant whose FT gene had been disabled, the daughter plants no longer flowered. They then attached a fluorescent protein to the host's FT protein and saw it glowing in the daughter tissues, proving that it was available to the daughter and was found to interact with flowering-related genes in the daughters, which was further evidence for the connection. Now, of course, this might seem like a slam dunk, uh, but of course, as you probably know, nothing ever is a slam dunk. <laughs> James Westwood, a plant pathologist at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, notes that there are actually examples of daughters flowering when their host isn't flowering. So obviously there will need to be more research. 
It may be that most plants have developed the ability to use the host's FT, but it may depend on the specific host plant or some other signal we have not yet detected. As Westwood notes, biology is rarely that simple. Regardless, it is a very cool study and shows us how the parasitic plant can use its host biology to its own benefit, which is really cool and interesting. I mean, I know they're not the greatest thing to talk about because they tend to inspire that ick sensation in us, but parasites are actually one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of nature. Uh, some uh, animal parasites and some plant parasites, but some animal parasites in particular have just the most fascinating and incredible life cycles that are just mind-blowing in the sort of idea of how in the heck did that develop? And so, yeah, even though they're kind of gross, parasites are also really, really fascinating. But plant parasites are, you know, less icky. So let's, let's continue talking about that. And so we're going to talk about a new form of the quote-unquote vampire plant known as common broom rape. And so this has been found in, well, a series of British car parks. <laughs> Scientists Dr. Chris Thorogood at the University of Oxford Botanic Garden and Dr. Fred Rumsey at London's Natural History Museum have described the new plant. Broom rapes are sac sap-sucking plant pilferers, say that three times fast, which steal food from the roots of other plants, hence them being parasitic. So apparently the new variety, Orobanche minor variety Heliophilia, has a particular liking for Ikea and Tesco car parks. So Tesco is a popular grocery store in the UK, um, like Stop and Shop or Winn-Dixie or um, I don't know what they have out in California, but um, Tesco's is just basically a large uh, supermarket chain. So the plants have, again, no leaves, no roots, and they actually produce no green pigments again, but feature a purplish flowering spike that juts out of the ground. The researchers suspect that they favor these particularly odd habits, habitats because they enjoy preying upon a particular shrub called Brachiagodus jubar, variety sunshine, that is often planted in shop car parks, which allows the parasitic plants to thrive. It can also be found in parks, gardens, and along seafronts. The name given to the new species Heliophilia means sun-loving, a reference to its love, quote-unquote, for the sunshine shrub. Now, though a parasite, this one is actually not harmful to the, to the host plant. So apparently the host plant can get along just fine uh, without being hurt by this plant. So that's always good. The researchers examined the anatomy of the roots, floral parts, color, ability to regenerate, and the ability to grow on different host plants to determine that this was a new variety, distinct from those already known to science. The new variety occurs throughout Britain, but it's unknown when it evolved because its host was introduced to the UK after 1910 from New Zealand. It may have moved from native plants to this new host due to its ubiquitous nature in recent decades, being the apparently shrub of choice for uh, store car parks. <laughs> now, because they don't vary much from other varieties, they went undiscovered for some amount of time because they basically, they're different, but they're not so different that you would look and immediately say, oh, that is a new species. It is very different from the other species. It's not quite like that. And one of the things is that parasitic plants in general are less well understood than other plants. 
Now, this is probably somewhat bias. Obviously, again, bias creeps into a lot of science and we don't really mean for it to. But the other part of it is that botanists used to rely mainly on leaves, stems, and roots to identify different plants, which, of course, as we know, these are all features that parasitic plants usually lack. So if you have a plant that doesn't have its own leaves, its own stems, and its own roots, well, usually they have their own stem, but if it doesn't have its own leaves or roots, that's hard to push into the box of all of the other plants that you have. And so that's how they tend to get sort of left behind uh, and are less studied. Okay, we are now going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to switch gears again and talk about some archaeological stories. So please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. This is Evidence-Based Radio. And so, as I said, we are going to switch gears now from parasitic plants to archaeology. And I saw this first story uh, last week, but I just didn't get a chance to talk about it. And I think it's pretty cool because it is actually an American archaeology story where, uh, you know, a lot of times archaeology tends to be in other places because other places have theoretically had uh, 
important archaeological uh, discoveries to be made from much wider amounts of time and uh, things like that. But this is a story about how, again, we tend to underestimate the people who lived in the uh, North American continent before supposed uh, civilized Europeans got there. So specifically, specially equipped, I should say, drones flying over a Kansas cattle ranch have found the remains of a horseshoe-shaped ditch made more than 400 years ago by the ancestors of today's Wichita and affiliated tribes, according to new research. The find adds more weight to the idea that the Kansas site was part of a sprawling population center, which the Spanish explorers called the Great Settlement in 1601. According to Jesse Casana of Dartmouth College and colleagues who reported on the finding in the journal American Antiquity, the area was called Etzenoa by a captive taken by the Spanish from the area. If confirmed, it could be one of the largest Native American settlements found north of Mexico. Currently, the largest is Cahokia in what is now Illinois, where as many as 20,000 people lived between 1050 and 1150 CE. And so we've talked about Cahokia before, and Cahokia was a really amazing place. Um, and it unfortunately uh, kind of is favored in this situation by having sort of more distinctive remains. Um, the mounds are still very much there, and you can still very much see that a lot of effort and work went into making them. And so the ancestral Wichita communities in Kansas and northern Oklahoma, uh, those sites date from between 1425 and 1650. And so that turns out to mean that they were contemporaries of the Inca civilization. So again, just because we know more about the Inca, the Maya, and the Aztecs doesn't mean that there weren't comparable societies in the north who just didn't build with stone in the way that uh, South American uh, civilizations did. And so, as we probably all know, uh, they were eventually driven from their lands in the 1800s by European American settlers, who obviously, uh, when they were moved, a lot of their uh, history and their uh, community identity was splintered and or lost. And so the earthwork consists of a 6.5 foot wide ditch that forms a semicircle around 164 feet across. And this is similar to other earthworks known as council circles. Five council circles have been found among 22 ancestral Wichita sites excavated along a five-mile stretch of the Little Arkansas and Smoky Hill Rivers, around 143 miles north of the new site. We apparently have located the sixth council circle and the only one that has not been disturbed, said, says anthropologist, ar anthropological archaeologist Donald Blakesley of Wichita State University. Farming and construction projects have damaged or covered many ancestral Wichita sites. And unfortunately, that's true for a lot of sites. Um, not here, not only here, but also in other places. Uh, you're constantly reading, if you read archaeological literature, about uh, sites that are being threatened by farming and construction and expansion. Um, and so unfortunately, that is a active thing that is happening. Um, and so we need to really be continuing to try and look for these places so that we can find them before they are actually obliterated uh, without anyone ever being able to study them. And so drones are obviously a new and exciting addition to the range of tools available to archaeologists in order to find traces of former occupation. 
And so uh, we've talked a lot about LIDAR, which has kind of revolutionized a lot of uh, archaeology in places with thick vegetation. But here, obviously, that's not an issue. What's an issue is being able to get above ground and see the larger picture, which a drone can do just as well as a small airplane. Now, unfortunately, we don't know how the people would have used these council circles. They may have been for ritual ceremonies, they may have been houses of social elites, or they may have actually been just built as protection from attackers. So previous discoveries of items made of obsidian, seashells, and other exotic materials found at some of the council circles suggest that among that some amount of ritual activity may have taken place there. Um, but again, it might also just be things associated with people of higher status. So unfortunately, we can't know for certain. So Blakesley was inspired to look at the site by publications of an of an archaeological dig from 60 years ago. Etsanoa likely existed as a single spread out community, he suggests. Upstream, another site suggests a separate Wichita town that ran for around two miles along a river. From 2015 to 2019, Blakesley led an excavation at the House Family Cattle Ranch in southeastern Kansas, which uncovered ancestral Wichita objects such as stone tools and cooking utensils, along with 17th century Spanish items such as a horseshoe nail and bullets. And so these finds support Spanish documents and maps from a 1601 expedition to Wichita Territory, which eventually led the Kansas State Legislature in 2017 to designate the site and its surrounding area as Etsanoa. It also led to the new drone survey. Kasana directed aerial sweeps over grazing land at the cattle ranch, as again, they were less likely to be damaged than in areas which had been farmed. The drone mounted equipment measured heat and radiation differences in the ground to detect buried structures. The remains are found at the highest point on the property, overlooking the river valley. Other circular earthworks of the ancestral Wichita and neighboring groups in the southern Great Plains were also built at elevated spots. The drones also noted signs of two pits, one dug at or near each end of the semicircular structure. Material from these pits may have been used to create the earthworks themselves. They also suggest that erosion may have worn away part of what was once a circular feature. More remote sensing will be done at the site before excavations in order to really hone in on where they should be looking. And so hopefully they will find new and interesting artifacts to support the knowledge that these people had large, complex cities or settlements, shall we say, that should be more well-known and should be understood to contribute to pushing back against this myth that Native Americans were quote-unquote savages who needed quote-unquote European civilizing. Um, and so I think it's a real shame that we don't know more about these sorts of things and that um, places like Cahokia are not well as well known uh, and are not taught as important parts of the early history of our nation. Um, and I think that uh, obviously I have a bias. I will absolutely claim my bias that uh, my uh, specialty in uh, history when I was in college was Native American studies. So I have always been very interested in this and am very passionate about this idea that we don't spend enough time talking about the rich history of this continent before Europeans got here um, and that we don't talk more about the reasons for why that is and talk about things like more specifically how huge swaths of people who had been here that had 
thriving communities were wiped out by disease and that we just basically gloss over that like oh well you know we got here and everything was just ready for us uh as if god had done that quote unquote god rather than people had done it and then they had been killed and left these cultivated lands for the europeans to then usurp basically um and so obviously that is definitely one of my hobby horses uh and so i'm always really interested f- to learn more about finds that are really impressive and show how much uh native americans were uh civilized quote unquote even though even if they were savages they still didn't uh deserve what happened to them even if they had simply been groups of hunter-gatherers with no material culture and no uh, larger organization they still should have been respected as humans Um, but I think it is really interesting and fun to learn about ways in which they did have these grand um civilizations where they did have these organizational uh, structures where large amounts of people were together, had specific material cultures, um, because that's something that's really, uh, you know, knowing about a people's material culture is so much more interesting than just knowing about, you know, empty buildings and leftover henges and things like that um and obviously there's room for those things but I think it's more interesting to know about what people were really doing and what people really um thought and um understood about themselves and unfortunately for these sorts of older uh civilizations that's often hard we have to do a lot of guesswork but I think it's still well worth the effort okay Let's actually get back to some stories now. (laughs) Um, And so I want to talk about another favorite uh, around here, which is, of course, Vikings. And so so a new study suggests that our idea of Vikings as tall, blonde Scandinavians is actually not realistic. Surprise, surprise again, Um, because we're often wrong about these sorts of things when we pull them from popular culture. And so um, apparently Vikings carried genes from Southern Europe and Asia, according to a new study. We didn't know genetically what they actually looked like until now, senior author Eski Willerslev a fellow at St. John's College of the University of Cambridge and director of the Lund Beck Foundation Geogenetics Center at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, said in a statement. <laughs> the research debunks the modern image of Vikings, quote unquote. And so this study actually took six years to complete by an international group of researchers who analyzed the DNA taken from remains such as teeth and bones of 442 people who lived between 2400 BCE and 1600 CE, found in archaeological sites from Europe and Greenland. Now, the people were mostly concentrated during the Viking Age, from 750 to 1050 CE. They then compared them to an already published DNA database of sequences from 3,855 modern-day and 1,118 ancient individuals. And so the new research suggests that the Vikings weren't just the continuation of Iron Age groups who lived between 500 BCE and 700 CE in Scandinavia before the Viking Age. It seems the Vikings and their ancestors would have intermingled often with people from Asia and Southern Europe. Many of them had, quote, high levels of non-Scandinavian ancestry, according to the authors. 
No one could have predicted these significant gene flows into Scandinavia from Southern Europe and Asia happened before and during the Viking Age, Willerslev said. They also found that many Vikings had brown hair, not blonde hair, as typically imagined, according to the statement. In addition, they found genetic differences among different Viking populations within Scandinavia, suggesting that there was less mingling between the groups than had been previously thought. Coastal communities had the highest genetic diversity, likely due to more trading and traveling with the with those in the heartland of Scandinavia having less diversity. They were also able to confirm ideas about where certain populations moved out of Scandinavia to raid and to trade. So Vikings from Denmark typically went to England. Vikings from Sweden went mostly east to the Baltic region. And Vikings from Norway traveled to Ireland, Iceland, Greenland, and the Isle of Man, which if you look at the map is a little bit odd that that's where people were going. But, you know, um, I would have thought that those going from, um, I mean, I suppose that kind of works. Um, but anyways, they also discovered some unique sort of cultural facts, such as the fact that a boat burial in Estonia may have been the earliest evidence for a Viking voyage. Now, it's not clear if the voyage was a raid or a so-called diplomatic expedition, but the burial, made of two boats, contained the remains of 41 men from what is now Sweden, who died violently and were buried with high-status weaponry. Among the remains were four brothers and a relative, which suggests that raiding may have been a family or local sort of village activity. Others in the burial had similar genetic makeups, and they seem to have all come from this same location within Sweden. It also turns out that being from Scandinavia was not a prerequisite for being a Viking. And I think we've seen some of this before, but um, it's always good to find new examples. So, for instance, in Orkney, um, Scotland, uh, in the Orkney Islands in Scotland, two male skeletons were buried as Vikings with swords and other paraphernalia that marked them as Vikings, but their genetics were similar to modern-day Irish and Scottish people. So while today we might associate Nordic people with blonde hair and blue eyes, this was not so true of the Vikings, who were more prone to seek out new opportunities and to co-mingle with other populations. <laughs> and speaking of Vikings, a metal detectorist has un uncovered a Viking board game in Lincolnshire, in Lincolnshire dating back to 872 CE. Now, metal detectorists are a sort of kind of sore spot um, in some archaeological circles. Uh, in England, there is a very, very rich tradition of metal detectorists. Most of them work very closely with archaeologists and with local uh, museums and are pretty ethical. Um, other places, they are not, and that is distressful because if you have someone who is just digging up things, um, one of the big things about artifacts is that once they're taken from the ground, unless they were taken from the ground by a professional who marked it very clearly and very precisely, once you take that object out of the ground and you're just a lay person or, um, you know, you're not a professional, you've robbed that object of a lot of its worth. Um, because what's really important about that object is where it was found, what layer, what it was associated with, all of that is lost. Um, so a lot of, you know, if you buy a fossil in a fossil shop, I also have mixed feelings about that. Like I have some ammonite fossils, um, but um, it's, it's tricky because they're not, they're, they're more just a, uh, an object without any value at that point. They're pretty. They just become a pretty object because nothing can be said about that fossil once it's been put into 
been, been dug up by someone who plans to sell it. Um, and so, you know, obviously your mileage may vary. I'm not going to say whether I believe that people should have any of this, do any of this uh, specifically, but just know that there is some, you know, ethical conundrums around this. Um, but again, in England, it's mostly, uh, most metal detectorists do work in hand in hand with actual historical and archaeological authorities. And so um, this particular metal detectorist is Mick Bott, a retired miner who found a complete set of 37 pieces used in Henfetalf, a chess-like game popular with soldiers at a site next to the River Trent. Now, the 73-year-old has apparently been working in the area for 20 years, and this actually led historians to know that Vikings set up a camp there in the winter of 872. And so again, he's been working with local authorities. He and his friends first surveyed the site in 1982, when the group unearthed hundreds of coins, strap ends, brooches, and mounts, all from the 9th century. It was later on, after showing many of our finds to the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, that the experts realized that this was the Viking winter camp of 872-3, when several thousand men of the Viking army overwintered, Mr. Bott said. Nigel Mills, an artifact consultant with auctioneer Dix Noonan Webb, was shown the objects. Uh, amongst them were these small lead objects, which Nick identified as lead weights. However, uh, Mills was a little bit suspicious of that idea. He didn't think that that necessarily was right because when he weighed them, they didn't have any consistency in their weight. Um, so Nick had thought that they were a set of weights, but they didn't seem to weigh things that would be meaningful. It was only when I was in Oslo Museum that I realized they had two of these gaming pieces out of polished stone for from this game, Hanefatal, which match the conical lead weights that Mick had. So I realized that there was a connection, and I discussed it with Mark Blackburn at the Fitzwilliam, and he agreed that these were gaming pieces. This is believed, therefore, um, to be the oldest complete set of pieces to be found at one site. Now, the object of the game is for the defender to move the king to one of the corner squares, which are designated as castles, while the attacker tries to surround the king on all four sides to prevent him from moving. It is a very strategic game. It's like chess in the sense that you have to think about all the various lines of play, about what's happening behind you, in front of you, and to the side, Mr. Mills said. You have to think ahead, and it is quite difficult to win by attacking. It's very biased towards the defense, which is an interesting game for the Viking to, Vikings to play. Obviously, they're always attacking. Defense wasn't so important to them. Now, some of the kings feature differing copper insets, and Mr. Mills posits that the winner of the game may have won the king, and it may have been that they continually played in order to try to collect as many different kings as possible. So that's really interesting. Okay, let's end tonight with a quick story about one of the two inevitabilities in life, taxes. Archaeologists discovered a silo back in 1999 at Hattusha in what is now Turkey. Founded in roughly 1650 BCE, Hattusha was the capital of the Hittite Empire, which rivaled Egypt in its, emp in its empire. The silo covered an area roughly the size of a soccer field, or a football pitch, as uh, was noted, <laughs> and contained hundreds of tons of intact grain in layers more than three feet, feet thick. Amy Boggard at the University of Oxford and colleagues examined the wheat and barley in five of the silo's 32 chambers. The intermixed weed seeds and chemical profiles of the grains suggested each chamber represented a separate farming community or communities. This suggests the, the silo contained grain collected as tax from people across the empire and represented the wealth of the Hittite king. 
That is, until it was devastated by fire shortly after its construction and abandoned. Perhaps there are more than two inevitable things. (laughs) Okay, that's all the time we have for tonight. Have a good week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.